Safe injection sites have been used for years around the world as a successful harm reduction measure to reduce overdose deaths, but are still illegal in the United States. With COVID-19 threatening to increase an already high baseline rate of overdose deaths in the U.S., safe injection sites are gaining more attention, but still remain a contentious political issue. On this episode, we discuss a recently published paper on outcomes from an unsanctioned safe injection site within the U.S. That's coming up from the Lancet Psychiatry in New York. I'm Dustin Graham. Stay with us. Hey, hello. Hi, Alex. Can you hear me? There we go. Now I can hear you. Dr. Alex Kroll is an epidemiologist working with RTI International and recently published a paper in the New England Journal of Medicine on the five-year outcomes of an unsanctioned safe injection site at an undisclosed location in the U.S. We caught up with Alex to discuss his group's recent work. So to get started, I guess the, yeah, the first thing that I think would be helpful maybe to our listeners is to hear a little bit about safe injection sites and maybe specifically some of the the politics and, and current state of safe injection sites in uh, the U.S. specifically? Uh, yeah. So, um, you know, uh, at this point, safe consumption sites, you know, what they are is they're an innovative harm reduction intervention where uh, essentially people can bring their pre-obtained drugs to be used uh, at a sterile site uh, while being supervised by a health professional. Uh, and basically, uh, these sites consist of sterile you know, injection supplies and disposal, uh, stainless steel tables that are disinfected between each time uh, somebody uses them, and a person who's monitoring their drug use, uh, who's trained to identify an overdose and to intervene uh, with naloxone or oxygen in case there's an overdose. Uh, many of these sites also have wraparound services, including medical care and substance use treatment. And uh, to this point, there's been... Uh, about over 150 of these sites in Europe, Australia, and Canada starting in 1986. Uh, and there's a, a fairly large body of scientific evaluations of the sites in the peer-reviewed medical literature, uh, which has found that the safe consumption sites help reduce overdose deaths and HIV risk while facilitating entry to uh, uh, substance use treatment among the people who do use them. Uh, and also that uh, public injections and publicly disposed needles in crime are reduced in the neighborhoods where they put these sites. Mm. And and are, are are there any currently in the in the U.S.? Yeah. So the situation in the U.S. is uh, that while there have been I think almost ten mayors of of major U.S. cities that have declared their intentions at this point to opening these sites. No sanctioned sites uh, exist in the U.S. Uh, the, uh, there's a bill currently in California, California Assembly Bill 362, uh, which would allow a pilot of these safe consumption sites uh, in San Francisco uh, or Oakland. Um, and that's passed the, uh, the California Assembly and is waiting to be heard on the floor of the state Senate this month. Um, that, that said... Uh, there has been um, at least one uh, unsanctioned safe consumption site, which is the thing that the site that we've evaluated, uh, and that's been existing now for uh, well over five years. Yeah, and so that kind of segues into into my next question about the uh, your recent uh, correspondence piece in the New England Journal of Medicine, uh, where you 
uh, evaluated, I think it was five years worth of findings from that unsanctioned site. And I was hoping if you could maybe give us the main take-home messages of, of that study. Yeah, so it's an interesting study. Uh, my colleague Peter Davidson at UC San Diego and I were basically, we were approached by activists uh, over five years ago to uh, help evaluate an unsanctioned safe consumption site that they were planning to open. You know, these are brave people who decided they needed to practice self uh, civil disobedience in order to put an end to all the overdose deaths that they had in their community. Um, so together with our colleagues, Lynn Wenger and, and Barrett Landon here at RTI International, um, we basically, uh, it, it, we evaluated the first five years of operation and, and that's what we published there in the New England Journal um, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, the, the, the main findings, besides that they were able to do this work for five years without any problem, and they're actually still operating um, and now and even through COVID at this point, uh, was uh, that over the first five years, we found that they had monitored over 10,000 injections. Uh, and during those 10,000 injections, 33 people had actually overdosed. Um, and all of those people were successfully resuscitated by the staff uh, who were monitoring them. Um, so no one died. And I think also remarkably, they didn't, you know, none of them required calling 911 or being transported to any kind of a medical institution or a hospital or ER in any kind of way um, as well. Those were the main, the main findings of it. And, you know, this is in, in really in stark juxtaposition to the over 70,000 Americans who are dying each year now of overdose uh, in community settings. Uh, and that's, you know, that's every year, uh, over 70,000 people in the U.S. dying. And so, Here's a site that that no one died. And so it, it certainly gives us hope that uh, this would be an intervention that not only has been proven to work in other countries around the world, but a pretty high likelihood of being able to uh, to work here in the U.S. Now, I, I think one of the things that uh, the correspondents points out, which for obvious reasons, there, there are limitations to what can be done, right, with results at an unsanctioned site, right? It's difficult to follow people because of the fact that there's so much secrecy uh, that, that's required. I, I guess to me, what, what struck me the most was, uh, even though maybe the science and generalization might be a bit limited at this point, I think what's amazing is just that the study itself exists. I wanted to ask you a little bit about details about the challenges of conducting this kind of a study, where, as you said, I mean, uh, you know, essentially the, 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 the staff involved are, are breaking the law doing, <laughs> conducting this. And so I was wondering if you could let us know what were some challenges that you and your team, uh, what did you face? Did you face any with your institution? Was it difficult getting something like this published at a place like New England Journal of Medicine? Yeah, I mean, the, the I think you've identified some of the key issues there. That the the main challenge really of conducting the study for us was making sure we had protocols in place and that we followed them uh, in terms of making sure we weren't divulging any information to where the site is located. And having you know over these five years presented this data in various places talked to a lot of media and so forth and lots of people wanting to try to, try to figure out, you know, how do you, you know, where is this place and making sure that we aren't in any way divulging that. And, and that's, that's been something that's been uh, a challenge in terms of even collecting some of the data and figuring out how we present some of the data mm -hmm. to make sure that there's nothing site specific or geographically mm -hmm. specific to the kinds of data that we did. And so 
even uh, you know one of the one of the tables that we have in the supplemental uh, piece of the New England Journal there. Uh, you know, we combined opioids, uh, heroin and fentanyl, even though we had them separate, uh, just uh, so that over time, you couldn't tell when exactly fentanyl entered into the drug market in that particular geographical region, because they entered in different parts in different parts of the country. Uh, so there were some of those kinds of challenges that we've had along the way. Um, in terms of the, the, the research protocols, you know, working with, with, a, with a, uh, an organization like this, we really needed to make sure that the protocols and things that we, placed, that we put in place weren't too burdensome both for the staff mm-hmm. uh, or, and for the, for the participants themselves. And so we're not going to start with these long, you know, protocols or long surveys and, and things that we're going to, you know, that we're going to really hamper their ability to, to really conduct the, the, the study as, it, you know, conduct their service as, as it was, because it's really a service. It's not, a, you know, it's not a research endeavor per se. And I think it's interesting too, you know, it's an observational study for us, right? We're not in charge of the intervention. We have nothing to do with the intervention. We're mm-hmm. not implementing it. We don't really have any input into what they're going to do with it. Um, and we're, we're basically just observe, observing it. So that, that was the key, key thing there. Um, in terms of, um, you know, these studies, you know, the IRB that we did, they were, they were willing to not also not know what the site uh, mm-hmm. was, what the city mm-hmm. was. And, and, and so that was something that we uh, needed to get through as well. And, and that was an interesting process, but they were willing to do that as well. Um, and the journal, New England Journal, did not seem to have any concerns about not knowing exactly where the site was. Given the other issues of civil disobedience with physicians and, and, and scientists now. We, we've had the March for Science since 2017, uh, but I think especially over the past four months, the Black Lives Matter movement and, and COVID-19 have really brought to the forefront that, especially in the U.S., it's very difficult for scientists and physicians on any important issue to remain apolitical. So, uh, do you hope things like this new proposition that's up uh, in San Francisco might have a bit more steam because of, uh, I guess, what's happening now? Yeah, I, I mean, both Black uh, Lives Matter and uh, COVID are things that affect drug use issues and criminalization of those kinds of things for a long time. I mean, the war on drugs has been a policy that's that's been intentionally actually uh, getting people who are people of color and specifically African Americans, um, you know, getting them off the streets and into jails and prisons uh, through through uh, a lot of criminal laws and uh, around policing, uh, policing people who uh, who are using drugs. Uh, with COVID, one of the things we're seeing that's a, a that's a big issue is that. Um, you know, when people are using drugs, basically most uh, programs are, are suggesting people don't use drugs alone because if they do, were they to overdose, um, they would die. Uh, if there's somebody there with them, uh, then they can help save them either through naloxone or oxygen or, or calling 911. So the challenge with COVID has been that the message is that everyone needs to shelter in place and be by themselves. Uh, there are even uh, some great, uh, some great, uh, policy pieces in many cities where uh, homeless people are, are actually getting housing through COVID because they want people to shelter in place. And housing is absolutely necessary for people who are homeless, but it's not sufficient uh, because what's uh, actually happening is then people are not allowed to have anyone in their rooms 
in those rooms or single room, uh, single room occupancy, uh, you know, hotels. And so when people are overdosing, there's no one there to save them. And so people are dying in these hotels during COVID uh, because they have to buy, you know, they have to be by themselves when they're using drugs. Uh, so, you know, both Black Lives Matter and, and the policing um, reform that's needed and also COVID are, are both contributing to, to issues around, uh, around drug use and, and safety around drug use um, that something like a safe consumption site uh, can actually help with uh, because it actually is monitoring people using their drugs. Uh, it's getting people off the streets so that they're not being arrested uh, while, you know, while they're using drugs at, at the same time. All right, great. Well, thanks very much for joining us, Alex, and uh, talking with us a little bit about uh, your recent work. All right, take care. Thank you. You can read Alex and his colleagues' paper in the New England Journal of Medicine on their website. That's it for this episode. Join us again to hear the latest news and views in mental health from around the world. For the entire editorial team at the Lancet Psychiatry, thanks for listening. Be well and stay safe.